Chapter 6. Human Pain Since the life of Christ is every way most bitter to nature and the self and the me, for in the true life of Christ the self and the me and nature must be forsaken and lost and die altogether, therefore in each of us nature hath a horror of it. Theologia Germanica I have tried to show in a previous chapter that the possibility of pain is inherent in the very existence of a world where souls can meet. When souls become wicked, they will certainly use this possibility to hurt one another, and this, perhaps, accounts for four-fifths of the sufferings of men. It is men, not God, who have produced racks, whips, prisons, slavery, guns, bayonets, and bombs. It is by human avarice or human stupidity, not by the churlishness of nature, that we have poverty and overwork. But there remains, nonetheless, much suffering which cannot thus be traced to ourselves. Even if all suffering were man-made, we should like to know the reason for the enormous permission to torture their fellows which God gives to the worst of men. To say, as was said in the last chapter, that good, for such creatures as we now are, means primarily corrective or remedial good, is an incomplete answer. Not all medicine tastes nasty, or if it did, that is itself one of the unpleasant facts for which we should like to know the reason. Before proceeding, I must pick up a point made in chapter 2. I there said that pain, below a certain level of intensity, was not resented and might even be rather liked. Perhaps you then wanted to reply, in that case I should not call it pain, and you may have been right. But the truth is that the word pain has two senses which now must be distinguished. A. A particular kind of sensation, probably conveyed by specialized nerve fibers and recognizable by the patient as that kind of sensation, whether he dislikes it or not, for example, the faint ache in my limbs would be recognized as an ache even if I didn't object to it. B. Any experience, whether physical or mental, which the patient dislikes. It will be noticed that all pains in sense A become pains in sense B if they are raised above a certain very low level of intensity, but that pains in the B sense need not be pains in the A sense. Pain in the B sense, in fact, is synonymous with suffering, anguish, tribulation, adversity, or trouble, and it is about it that the problem of pain arises. For the rest of this book, pain will be used in the B sense and will include all types of suffering. With the A sense, we have no further concern. Now, the proper good of a creature is to surrender itself to its creator, to enact intellectually, volitionally, and emotionally that relationship which is given in the mere fact of its being a creature. When it does so, it is good and happy. Lest we should think this a hardship, this kind of good begins on a level far above the creatures, for God himself, as Son, from all eternity, renders back to God as Father, by filial obedience, the being which the Father, by paternal love, eternally generates in the Son. This is the pattern which man was made to imitate, which paradisal man did imitate, and wherever the will conferred by the Creator is thus perfectly offered back in delighted and delighting obedience by the creature, there, most undoubtedly, is heaven, and there the Holy Ghost proceeds. In the world as we now know it, the problem is how to recover this self-surrender. We are not merely imperfect creatures who must be improved. We are, as Newman said, rebels who must lay down our arms. The first answer, then, to the question why our cure should be painful is that to render back the will which we have so long claimed for our own is, in itself, wherever and however it is done, a grievous pain. Even in paradise I have supposed a minimal self-adherence to be overcome, though the overcoming and the yielding would there be rapturous. But to surrender a self-will inflamed and swollen with years of usurpation is a kind of death. We all remember this self-will as it was in childhood, the bitter, prolonged rage at every thwarting, 
the burst of passionate tears, the black satanic wish to kill or die rather than to give in. Hence the older type of nurse or parent was quite right in thinking that the first step in education is to, quote, break the child's will. Their methods were often wrong, but not to see the necessity is, I think, to cut oneself off from all understanding of spiritual laws. And if, now that we are grown up, we do not howl and stamp quite so much, that is partly because our elders began the process of breaking or killing our self-will in the nursery, and partly because the same passions now take more subtle forms and have grown clever at avoiding death by various compensations. Hence the necessity to die daily. However often we think we have broken the rebellious self, we shall still find it alive. That this process cannot be without pain is sufficiently witnessed by the very history of the word mortification. But this intrinsic pain, or death, in mortifying the usurped self, is not the whole story. Paradoxically, mortification, though itself a pain, is made easier by the presence of pain in its context. This happens, I think, principally in three ways. The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. Now error and sin both have this property that the deeper they are, the less their victim suspects their existence. They are masked evil. Pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he is being hurt. The masochist is no real exception. Sadism and masochism respectively isolate and then exaggerate a moment or aspect in normal sexual passion. Sadism exaggerates the aspect of capture and domination to a point at which only ill treatment of the beloved will satisfy the pervert, as though he said, I am so much master that I even torment you. Masochism exaggerates the complementary and opposite effect and says, I am so enthralled that I welcome even pain at your hands. Unless the pain were felt as evil, as an outrage underlining the complete mastery of the other party, it would cease, for the masochist, to be an erotic stimulus. And pain is not only immediately recognizable evil, but evil impossible to ignore. We can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities, and anyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. A bad man, happy, is a man without the least inkling that his actions do not answer, that they are not in accord with the laws of the universe. A perception of this truth lies at the back of the universal human feeling that bad men ought to suffer. It is no use turning up our noses at this feeling, as if it were wholly base. On its mildest level, it appeals to everyone's sense of justice. Once when my brother and I, as very small boys, were drawing pictures at the same table, I jerked his elbow and caused him to make an irrelevant line across the middle of his work. The matter was amicably settled by my allowing him to draw a line of equal length across mine. That is, I was put in his place, made to see my negligence from the other end. On a sterner level, the same idea appears as retributive punishment, or giving a man what he deserves. Some enlightened people would like to banish all conceptions of retribution or desert from their theory of punishment and place its value wholly in the deterrence of others, or the reform of the criminal himself. They do not see that by so doing, they render all punishment unjust. What can be more immoral than to inflict suffering on me for the sake of deterring others if I do not deserve it? And if I do deserve it, you are admitting the claims of retribution. And what can be more outrageous than to catch me and submit me to a disagreeable process of moral improvement without my consent, unless, once more, I deserve it? On yet a third level, we get vindictive passion, the thirst for revenge. This, of course, is evil and expressly forbidden to Christians. But it has perhaps appeared already from our discussion of sadism and masochism that the ugliest things in human nature are perversions of good or innocent things. 
the good thing of which vindictive passion is the perversion, comes out with startling clarity in Hobbes' definition of revengefulness. Quote, desire by doing hurt to another to make him condemn some fact of his own. Leviathan, part 1, chapter 6. Revenge loses sight of the end and the means, but its end is not wholly bad. It wants the evil of the bad man to be to him what it was to everyone else. This is proved by the fact that the avenger wants the guilty party not merely to suffer, but to suffer at his hands, and to know it, and to know why. Hence the impulse to taunt the guilty man with his crime at the moment of taking vengeance. Hence, too, such natural expressions as, I wonder how he'd like it if the same thing were done to him, or I'll teach him. For the same reason, when we are going to abuse a man in words, we say we are going to let him know what we think of him. When our ancestors referred to pains and sorrows as God's vengeance upon sin, they were not necessarily attributing evil passions to God. They may have been recognizing the good element in the idea of retribution. Until the evil man finds evil unmistakably present in his existence in the form of pain, he is enclosed in illusion. Once pain has roused him, he knows that he is in some way or other up against the real universe. He either rebels, with the possibility of a clearer issue and deeper repentance at some later stage, or else makes some attempt at an adjustment, which, if pursued, will lead him to religion. It is true that neither effect is so certain now as it was in ages when the existence of God, or even of the gods, was more widely known. But even in our own days we see it operating. Even atheists rebel and express, like Hardy and Hausman, their rage against God, although, or because, he does not, on their view, exist. And other atheists, like Mr. Huxley, are driven by suffering to raise the whole problem of existence and to find some way of coming to terms with it which, if not Christian, is almost infinitely superior to fatuous contentment with a profane life. No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. If the first and lowest operation of pain shatters the illusion that all is well, the second shatters the illusion that what we have, whether good or bad in itself, is our own and enough for us. Everyone has noticed how hard it is to turn our thoughts to God when everything is going well with us. We have all we want is a terrible saying when all does not include God. We find God an interruption. As St. Augustine says somewhere, God wants to give us something, but cannot, because our hands are full. There's nowhere for him to put it. Or, as a friend of mine said, we regard God as an airman regards a parachute. It's there for emergencies, but he hopes he'll never have to use it. Now God, who has made us, knows what we are and that our happiness lies in him. Yet we will not seek it in him as long as he leaves us any other resort where it can even plausibly be looked for. While what we call our own life remains agreeable, we will not surrender it to him. What then can God do in our interests but make our own life less agreeable to us and take away the plausible sources of false happiness? It is just here, where God's providence seems at first to be most cruel, that the divine humility, the stooping down of the highest, most deserves praise. We are perplexed to see misfortune falling upon decent, inoffensive, worthy people, on capable, hard-working mothers of families, or diligent, thrifty, little tradespeople, on those who have worked so hard and so honestly for their modest stock of happiness, and now seem to be entering on the enjoyment of it with the fullest right. How can I say with sufficient tenderness what here needs to be said? It does not matter that I know I must become in the eyes of every hostile reader, as it were, personally responsible for all the sufferings I try to explain, just as, to this day, everyone talks as if St. Augustine wanted unbaptized infants to go to hell. But it matters enormously if I alienate anyone from the truth. Let me implore the reader to try to believe, if only for the moment, that God, who made these deserving people, may really be right when he thinks that their modest prosperity and the happiness of their children are not enough to make them blessed, that all this must fall from them in the end 
and that if they have not learned to know him, they will be wretched. And therefore he troubles them, warning them in advance of an insufficiency that one day they will have to discover. The life to themselves and their families stands between them and the recognition of their need. He makes that life less sweet to them. I call this a divine humility because it is a poor thing to strike our colors to God when the ship is going down under us, a poor thing to come to him as a last resort, to offer up our own when it is no longer worth keeping. If God were proud, he would hardly have us on such terms. But he is not proud. He stoops to conquer. He will have us even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him, and come to him because there is nothing better now to be had. The same humility is shown by all those divine appeals to our fears which trouble high-minded readers of Scripture. It is hardly complimentary to God that we should choose him as an alternative to hell, yet even this he accepts. The creature's illusion of self-sufficiency must, for the creature's sake, be shattered, and by trouble or fear of trouble on earth, by crude fear of the eternal flames, God shatters it, unmindful of his glory's diminution. Those who would like the God of Scripture to be more purely ethical do not know what they ask. If God were a Kantian, who would not have us till we came to him from the purest or best motives, who could be saved? And this illusion of self-sufficiency may be at its strongest in some very honest, kindly, and temperate people, and on such people, therefore, misfortune must fall. The dangers of apparent self-sufficiency explain why our Lord regards the vices of the feckless and dissipated so much more leniently than the vices that lead to worldly success. Prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous are in that danger. The third operation of suffering is a little harder to grasp. Everyone will admit that choice is essentially conscious. To choose involves knowing that you choose. Now a paradisal man always chose to follow God's will. In following it, he also gratified his own desire, both because all the actions demanded of him were, in fact, agreeable to his blameless inclination, and also because the service of God was itself his keenest pleasure, without which, as their razor edge, all joys would have been insipid to him. The question, am I doing this for God's sake or only because I happen to like it, did not then arise, since doing things for God's sake was what he chiefly happened to like. His Godward will rode his happiness like a well-managed horse, whereas our will, when we are happy, is carried away in the happiness as in a ship racing down a swift stream. Pleasure was then an acceptable offering to God because offering was a pleasure. But we inherit a whole system of desires which do not necessarily contradict God's will, but which, after centuries of usurped autonomy, steadfastly ignore it. If the thing we like doing is, in fact, the thing God wants us to do, yet that is not our reason for doing it, it remains a mere happy coincidence. We cannot therefore know that we are acting at all, or primarily for God's sake, unless the material of the action is contrary to our inclinations, or, in other words, painful. And what we cannot know that we are choosing, we cannot choose. The full acting out of the self's surrender to God therefore demands pain. This action, to be perfect, must be done from the pure will to obey, in the absence or in the teeth of inclination. How impossible it is to enact the surrender of the self by doing what we like, I know very well from my own experience at the moment. When I undertook to write this book, I hoped that the will to obey what might be a leading had at least some place in my motives. But now that I am thoroughly immersed in it, it has become a temptation rather than a duty. I may still hope that the writing of the book is, in fact, in conformity with God's will, but to contend that I am learning to surrender myself by doing what is so attractive to me would be ridiculous. Here we tread on very difficult ground. Kant thought that no action had moral value unless it were done out of pure reverence for the moral law, that is, without inclination, and he has been accused of a morbid frame of mind which measures the value of an act by its unpleasantness. All popular opinion is indeed on Kant's side. 
The people never admire a man for doing something he likes. The very words, but he likes it, imply the corollary, and therefore it has no merit. Yet against Kant stands the obvious truth noted by Aristotle that the more virtuous a man becomes, the more he enjoys virtuous actions. What an atheist ought to do about this conflict between the ethics of duty and the ethics of virtue, I do not know, but as a Christian, I suggest the following solution. It has sometimes been asked whether God commands certain things because they are right, or whether certain things are right because God commands them. With Hooker and against Dr. Johnson, I emphatically embrace the first alternative. The second might lead to the abominable conclusion, reached, I think, by Paley, that charity is good only because God arbitrarily commanded it, that he might equally well have commanded us to hate him and one another, and that hatred then would have been right. I believe, on the contrary, that they err who think that of the will of God to do this or that there is no reason besides his will. God's will is determined by his wisdom which always perceives, and his goodness which always embraces, the intrinsically good. But when we have said that God commands things only because they are good, we must add that one of the things intrinsically good is that rational creatures should freely surrender themselves to their creator in obedience. The content of our obedience, the thing we are commanded to do, will always be something intrinsically good, something we ought to do even if, by an impossible supposition, God had not commanded it. But in addition to the content, the mere obeying is also intrinsically good, for in obeying, a rational creature consciously enacts its creaturely role, reverses the act by which we fell, treads Adam's dance backward, and returns. We therefore agree with Aristotle that what is intrinsically right may well be agreeable, and that the better a man is, the more he will like it. But we agree with Kant so far as to say that there is one right act, that of self-surrender, which cannot be willed to the height by fallen creatures unless it is unpleasant. And we must add that this one right act includes all other righteousness, and that the supreme cancelling of Adam's fall, the movement full speed astern, by which we retrace our long journey from paradise, the untying of the old hard knot, must be when the creature, with no desire to aid it, stripped naked to the bare willing of obedience, embraces what is contrary to its nature, and does that for which only one motive is possible. Such an act may be described as a test of the creature's return to God. Hence our fathers said that troubles were sent to try us. A familiar example is Abraham's trial when he was ordered to sacrifice Isaac. With the historicity or the morality of that story I am not now concerned, but with the obvious question, if God is omniscient, he must have known what Abraham would do without any experiment, why then this needless torture? But, as St. Augustine points out, whatever God knew, Abraham at any rate did not know that his obedience could endure such a command until the event taught him, and the obedience which he did not know that he would choose, he cannot be said to have chosen. The reality of Abraham's obedience was the act itself, and what God knew in knowing that Abraham would obey was Abraham's actual obedience on that mountaintop at that moment. To say that God need not have tried the experiment is to say that because God knows, the thing known by God need not exist. If pain sometimes shatters the creature's false self-sufficiency, yet in supreme trial or sacrifice it teaches him the self-sufficiency which really ought to be his, the strength which, if heaven gave it, may be called his own. For then, in the absence of all merely natural motives and supports, he acts in that strength and that alone which God confers upon him through his subjected will. Human will becomes truly creative and truly our own when it is wholly God's, and this is one of the many senses in which he that loses his soul shall find it. In all other acts, our will is fed through nature, that is, through created things other than the self, through the desires which our physical organism and our heredity supply to us. When we act from ourselves alone, that is, from God in ourselves, we are collaborators in, or live instruments of, creation. 
And that is why such an act undoes, with backward mutters or dissevering power, the uncreative spell which Adam laid upon his species. Hence, as suicide is the typical expression of the Stoic spirit and battle of the warrior spirit, martyrdom always remains the supreme enacting and perfection of Christianity. This great action has been initiated for us, done on our behalf, exemplified for our imitation, and inconceivably communicated to all believers by Christ on Calvary. There, the degree of accepted death reaches the utmost bounds of the imaginable, and perhaps goes beyond them. Not only all natural supports, but the presence of the very Father to whom the sacrifice is made deserts the victim, and surrender to God does not falter, though God forsakes it. The doctrine of death which I describe is not peculiar to Christianity. Nature herself has written at large across the world in the repeated drama of the buried seed and the re-arising corn. From nature, perhaps, the oldest agricultural communities learned it, and with animal or human sacrifices showed forth for centuries the truth that without shedding of blood is no remission. And though at first such conceptions may have concerned only crops and offspring of the tribe, they came later in the mysteries to concern the spiritual death and resurrection of the individual. The Indian ascetic, mortifying his body on a bed of spikes, preached the same lesson. The Greek philosopher tells us that the life of wisdom is a practice of death. The sensitive and noble heathen of modern times makes his imagined gods die into life. Mr. Huxley expounds non-attachment. We cannot escape the doctrine by ceasing to be Christians. It is an eternal gospel revealed to men wherever men have sought or endured the truth. It is the very nerve of redemption which anatomizing wisdom at all times and in all places lays bare. The unescapable knowledge which the light that lighteneth every man presses down upon the minds of all who seriously question what the universe is about. The peculiarity of the Christian faith is not to teach this doctrine, but to render it in various ways more tolerable. Christianity teaches us that the terrible task has already in some sense been accomplished for us, that a master's hand is holding ours as we attempt to trace the difficult letters, and that our script need only be a copy, not an original. Again, where other systems expose our total nature to death, as in Buddhist renunciation, Christianity demands only that we set right a misdirection of our nature, and has no quarrel, like Plato, with the body as such, nor with the psychical elements in our makeup. And sacrifice in its supreme realization is not exacted at all. Confessors as well as martyrs are saved, and some old people whose state of grace we can hardly doubt seem to have got through their seventy years surprisingly easily. The sacrifice of Christ is repeated or re-echoed among his followers in very varying degrees, from the cruelest martyrdom down to a self-submission of intention whose outward signs have nothing to distinguish them from the ordinary fruits of temperance and sweet reasonableness. The causes of this distribution I do not know, but from our present point of view it ought to be clear that the real problem is not why some humble, pious, believing people suffer, but why some do not. Our Lord himself, it will be remembered, explained the salvation of those who are fortunate in this world only by referring to the unsearchable omnipotence of God. Mark 10.27 All arguments in justification of suffering provoke bitter resentment against the author. You would like to know how I behave when I am experiencing pain, not writing books about it. You need not guess, for I will tell you. I am a great coward. But what is that to the purpose? When I think of pain, of anxiety that gnaws like fire and loneliness that spreads out like a desert, and the heartbreaking routine of monotonous misery, or again of dull aches that blacken our whole landscape, or sudden nauseating pains that knock a man's heart out at one blow, of pains that seem already intolerable and then are suddenly increased, of infuriating scorpion-stinging pains that startle into maniacal movement a man who seemed half dead with his previous tortures, it quite o'ercrows my spirit. If I knew any way of escape, I would crawl through sewers to find it. But what is the good of telling you about my feelings? You know them already. 
they are the same as yours. I am not arguing that pain is not painful. Pain hurts. That is what the word means. I am only trying to show that the old Christian doctrine of being made perfect through suffering is not incredible. To prove it palatable is beyond my design. In estimating the credibility of the doctrine, two principles ought to be observed. In the first place, we must remember that the actual moment of present pain is only the center of what may be called the whole tribulational system which extends itself by fear and pity. Whatever good effects these experiences have are dependent upon the center, so that even if pain itself was of no spiritual value, yet if fear and pity were, pain would have to exist in order that there should be something to be feared and pitied. And that fear and pity help us in our return to obedience and charity is not to be doubted. Everyone has experienced the effect of pity in making it easier for us to love the unlovely, that is, to love men not because they are in any way naturally agreeable to us, but because they are our brethren. The beneficence of fear most of us have learned during the period of crises that led up to the present war. My own experience is something like this. I am progressing along the path of life in my ordinary contentedly fallen and godless condition, absorbed in a merry meeting with my friends for the morrow or a bit of work that tickles my vanity today, a holiday or a new book, when suddenly a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious disease, or a headline in the newspapers that threatens us all with destruction, sends this whole pack of cards tumbling down. At first I am overwhelmed, and all my little happinesses look like broken toys. Then, slowly and reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should be in at all times. I remind myself that all these toys were never intended to possess my heart, that my true good is in another world, and my only real treasure is Christ. And perhaps, by God's grace, I succeed, and for a day or two become a creature consciously dependent on God and drawing its strength from the right sources. But the moment the thread is withdrawn, my whole nature leaps back to the toys. I am even anxious, God forgive me, to banish from my mind the only thing that supported me under the threat because it is now associated with the misery of those few days. Thus the terrible necessity of tribulation is only too clear. God has had me for but forty-eight hours, and then only by dint of taking everything else away from me. Let him but sheed that sword for a moment, and I behave like a puppy when the hated bath is over. I shake myself as dry as I can and race off to reacquire my comfortable dirtiness, if not in the nearest manure heap, at least in the nearest flower bed. And that is why tribulations cannot cease until God either sees us remade, or sees that our remaking is now hopeless. In the second place, when we are considering pain itself, the center of the whole tribulational system, we must be careful to attend to what we know and not to what we imagine. That is one of the reasons why the whole central part of this book is devoted to human pain, and animal pain is relegated to a special chapter. About human pain we know, about animal pain we only speculate. But even within the human race, we must draw our evidence from instances that have come under our own observation. The tendency of this or that novelist or poet may represent suffering as wholly bad in its effects, as producing and justifying every kind of malice and brutality in the sufferer. And, of course, pain, like pleasure, can be so received. All that is given to a creature with free will must be two-edged, not by the nature of the giver or of the gift, but by the nature of the recipient. And again, the evil results of pain can be multiplied if sufferers are persistently taught by the bystanders that such results are the proper and manly results for them to exhibit. Indignation at others' sufferings, though a generous passion, needs to be well managed, lest it steal away patience and humility from those who suffer, and plant anger and cynicism in their stead. But I am not convinced that suffering, if spared such officious vicarious indignation, has any natural tendency to produce such evils. I did not find the front-line trenches, or the CCS, more full than any other place of hatred, selfishness, rebellion, and dishonesty. I have seen great beauty of spirit in some who were great sufferers. I have seen men, for the most part, grow better, not worse, with advancing years, 
and I have seen the last illness produce treasures of fortitude and meekness from most unpromising subjects. I see in loved and revered historical figures, such as Johnson and Cowper, traits which might scarcely have been tolerable if the men had been happier. If the world is indeed a veil of soul-making, it seems on the whole to be doing its work. Of poverty, the affliction which actually or potentially includes all other afflictions, I would not dare to speak as from myself, and those who reject Christianity will not be moved by Christ's statement that poverty is blessed. But here a rather remarkable fact comes to my aid. Those who would most scornfully repudiate Christianity as a mere, quote, opiate of the people, have a contempt for the rich, that is, for all mankind except the poor. They regard the poor as the only people worth preserving from liquidation, and place in them the only hope of the human race. But this is not compatible with a belief that the effects of poverty on those who suffer it are wholly evil. It even implies that they are good. The Marxist thus finds himself in real agreement with the Christian in those two beliefs which Christianity paradoxically demands, that poverty is blessed and yet ought to be removed.